0: Hello and welcome to Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Today I am joined by Dr Megan Piper from the School of Medicine and Public Health in the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Director of Research at the Centre for Tobacco Research and Intervention at the University of Wisconsin and a past president of SRNT. I am also joined by Dr Mignon Guy, who is an Associate Professor and Chair at the Department of African American Studies at Virginia Commonwealth University. Uh, Dr. Guy is also a faculty investigator at the Centre for the Study of Tobacco Products, also at Virginia Commonwealth University, and a co-chair on the Racial Equity Task Force for SRNT. Um, Both Dr. Piper and Dr. Guy are from the Society for for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco, and are here to talk about an editorial that was recently published in Addiction, titled Lessons Learned on Addressing Racism, Recommendations from the Society for Research on Nicotine and Tobacco's Racial Equity Task Force. Uh, Dr. Piper, Dr. Guy, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you me for today. having us.
1: Thank you. Um,
0: so to start with, uh, your editorial deals um, or outlines um, how you set up the Racial Equity Task Force um, for SRNT. I can ask you initially what what prompted you to set up the Racial Equity Task Force and why why now, why at that point.
1: Uh, sure. Uh, I'll answer that. This is uh, Megan. And um, I think what happened uh, setting up the racial equity task force was the result of what was going on globally that was becoming apparent to people who were not necessarily living that experience of racism. I feel like uh, the, the world became very much aware of, as we say in the paper, the fatal consequences of racism in a way that people you know, as a white woman, that was not my lived experience. And it became, a. I became aware of so many more things that were going on in the world. Um, that combined with some reading that I've been doing and the work of other people on the SRNT board, led us to recognize that, that not only are there fatal consequences, but there are insidious consequences of racism that are built in to academic structures. And SRT is primarily an academic um, organization. Um, you know, I was reading Michelle Obama's biography, and she was talking about how the lawyers from this very prestigious firm were selected because they came from the best of the best of the Ivy Leagues, and I thought. And she thought that these are her ideas. Well, the best of the best are rich white people who go to these schools because they can afford it. They have family that have gone there. They feel comfortable there because this is their environment. These are their people that doesn't necessarily make them the best of the best. It makes them the best of the people that want to be in that setting. And so that to me really registered as We have created a structure that allows certain people to succeed based on their financial status and the color of their skin. And we're missing out on brilliance because of where people were born or the color of their skin. And so that, um, as the board discussed this more and more, we recognized we needed to take a close look at how our society and how our academic system and structure was promoting or, or not actively working against the racism of our society. Um, and so that's what got this started. And we, in order to do this job, we couldn't just talk about it. We actually had to put something in place and that's where the racial equity task force came into play. And so, um, you know, the board decided we were going to do this. And I, you know, I had wanted to be part of the leadership of this. And then we we found uh, Dr. Mignon Guy and Dr. Kelvin Choi and the three of us served as co-chairs to really try to not just do the not just talk about it, but actually do some things and put some things in places to make change.
2: No, I think you summed it up very well. I think that um, you know, I'll just just to to tag on to to Megan's prior comments, you know, let's remember that this occurred at a time where there was this massive racial racial reckoning globally, right? As as Megan said. And let's also remember that had had we not been in the middle of a pandemic at a point in time where we were all forced to sit at home where it seemed like the world stopped, right? And then because of technology and because of social media and everything else, we saw what happened with George Floyd. We saw what happened with Breonna Taylor. We saw what happened with Ahmaud Arbery. And there was this sort of um, global sort of awakening of of anti-other that, we're aware, that people became aware of, right? So anything that was not white. Um, and, and really you saw an uprising in many form, formal, formerly colonized countries, right? Because that's, that's what they all saw. They said, well, hey, this is happening in America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, the thing that we dream of, the democracy, the true racial democracy that we've sold, that is an illusion, right? And we all had to stop and say, okay, what does this mean for who we are as a people? who we are as a country, who we are as a nation, who we are as a profession, who we are as researchers, as scientists, as public health scientists that are charged with with promoting the health of the public. How is the work that we're doing contributing to reinforcing these inequities or these racist systems and structures that are at play? Um, Yeah, so I jumped on board immediately because that was was right (laughs) up. Right at my
0: alley. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I think one of the one of the interesting things. Uh, these are these are enormous um, questions, like you say, global challenges, uh, and, and really kind of uh, soul searching questions and uh, fundamental ones to to the areas that that we live in and, and the places that we work. How did you go from from those kinds of big questions to setting up a task force that had specific outcomes and goals? Was, was that challenge kind? Was that challenging matching up those enormous questions to something that that had a, a function and that could could start to work on the, on those issues?
1: Yes. <laughs> <Sure> <laughs> <answer>. <laughs> you know, when we started this task force and we brought in folks representing all sorts of diverse perspectives, we had to have a lot of conversations. We had to have, a, we had to build trust. We had to figure out a way to talk with each other so that, um, you know, we were understanding. You know, I so appreciated Mignon's ability to tell me, Megan, that's white privilege. You have to stop and, and think about that, what you're saying. And I thought, oh my gosh, I get it. You know, so there was a lot of education and trust building that had to happen in our group so that everybody felt comfortable sharing and, and understanding perspective, everybody else's perspectives. Um, so that was sort of our first step. And then what we recognized is we're not gonna change the world. We're not, that, and that wasn't our goal. Though, thankfully, that was not our charge from the board. Our charge was to look at this scientific organization and figure out structurally what we need to do to achieve two different goals. The first goal is to make sure that the organization itself is is actively anti-racist, making sure that the the policies and procedures and the things we do and the way we present and promote science is anti-racist. And the second piece has to do with building up the scientific workforce, recognizing the barriers and and, um, challenges that non-white tobacco scientists deal with as they are trained and, and where we are losing people because they don't feel supported or they don't feel like they belong to this organization because it feels too white. Um, so those two goals, when we were able to kind of focus after all of our conversations on those two goals, I feel like we were able to lay out a plan of attack, um, that got us to to actually be able to offer the board some really constructive recommendations that the board has, many of which the board has taken, and they're continuing to continuing to work on. Um,
0: um, so how many people were on the, the final racial equity task force? And it, I, I guess also just in that process of those initial conversations, uh, difficult conversations, um, uh, were there any, I mean, did anyone leave the, uh, the equity task force at that point? Um, or, or did that kind of, um, Kind of bring that group closer together.
2: You know, I'll I'll can I jump in on that one? Um, because I do want to I do want to actually tag off of, of what, what Megan said previously. The thing that I appreciate, I have to tell you just from my personal experience, I think the thing I appreciated the most was the openness and willingness of those who did not walk in shoes like mine um, to to be engaged, to be vulnerable, to be um humble, um, to have humility. And I think that's what Megan and Bruce, who were the only, uh, and Trey, who were the only people that, that, that were widened through it, um, brought to the table. The, at the end of the day, we all have the same goal, right? And it became about more than our personal identities or our personal egos, but it became about sort of um, t- trying to embody and enact the change that we wanted to see around us in other spaces and places in our own society, right? Um, I, I personally, and I think that I can speak for others because I remember this happening on the calls. Um, most times when we ended our meetings, even though we, we were doing some really hard work, we I believe that most of us felt really invigorated and and had lots of energy when we walked away. And, and it was actually quite sad when we finished our, this was work, right? This was work, it was free. We weren't getting paid for it, right? Um, and, and yet... When we, when we wrapped it up and I'm jumping to the end, but we wrapped it up, I felt this sense of sadness because we had this, this sort of like-minded group um, from all walks of life that were all working together for the same purpose and for the same goal at the end of the day, right? And there were junior people on the call that were, that were, that were really invigorated and said, man, this group is amazing. I wish that I could do this kind of work forever. And now they're more engaged and more inclined to go into research knowing that there's a space like this for them, right? Um, none of us walked away. Um, in fact, when, when, when the opportunity to, to write the editorial came about, uh, Megan sent out an email saying something like, it's time to get the band back together again or something like that. <laughs> and I was like, yes, I'm in. Let's do it. Right. One more hurrah. And hopefully there'll be others for this group that was just so very committed to the work that we did. It was, it was a beautiful experience at the perfect time for me as a Black woman who needed to know that there were people out there from the dominant society that were trying to work for the same things that I was. I needed that personally, you know. So it was, it was a really beautiful experience.
1: I will say that the eight people on the task force, including um, who does not include the executive director of SRNT, who's Bruce Wheeler, who was also very active and supportive of our work, um, it was hard. And I think there were times of calls that were particularly challenging. And I think people probably had, I know I did with different people, have calls outside of our work call to, again, continue to understand, work through things, keep those relationships strong and getting stronger. And I'm right there with Mignon. It was hard to say goodbye when the work was done. So
0: you've established the racial equity task force um, and uh, you you talk in the editorial about uh, kind of undergoing this kind of various data collection activities. And I suppose this is where those kind of principles of research come in. Um, You also talk about uh, looking at, you you mentioned just now about looking at um, the structures within SRNT, and you also mentioned the foundational documents. can you perhaps be a bit more specific about which kinds of documents and which structures you looked at as the racial equity uh, task force um, and, and what kind of questions you asked of them?
1: Uh, sure. So as far as the structure goes, um, you know, we have policies. And so those are you know uh, things that we must do as a board and a society. We must follow these policies. Um, And we wanted to see, you know, where in these specific policies do we address race? Because in order, again, to combat something that is in many ways invisible and insidious, you have to explicitly identify it and call it out. So we looked through all of our policies. And Bruce Wheeler, again, the executive director, did a fabulous job of doing that, um, supporting us in that work. Then we look through all of our procedures. Those are sort of how we do things. How do we implement these policies? Where in our procedures? For example, our procedure for putting on our annual meeting. So we have an organization, there's program chairs and there's a committee and how do we do all this? And and it's sort of the working document for how we function. And where in there are we deliberately doing um, things to make sure that we are specifically inviting, encouraging, supporting, you know, non-white scientists? Where are we making sure that, that research on health equity is actually held at the same standard as research on biology, clinical treatment, policy, public health. And these, um, reviewing these policies and procedures helps see what's sort of baked into the society and how we function and what needs to be added. Um, and then we also talk to people. We talk to people that are doing this work. We talk to the program chairs. We talk to our our colleagues uh, in um, Oceania and Europe. Um, We talk to the different networks. Um, Again, this society goes from biology to society, and we talk to everybody about how are they addressing race in the work that they do as part of the society. And from all of that information, we were able to identify things that we needed to do. To achieve the goal that the board agreed on, which is that SRNT be an anti-racist society that promotes health equity for all populations, especially those who are who have been um, you know really targeted with to- by the tobacco industry.
0: In this process of looking at uh, looking through uh, policy structures, um, uh, you know these foundational documents, this this kind of data collection, were there any were there any parts of that that uh, that surprised you either in, um, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised or kind of slightly less pleasantly surprised?
2: Yeah, not really. Um, so, no, not, not terribly surprising. Let me tell you why. So, so when, you, when you look at, so if we think about how race operates in society, right, um, how racialized groups, let's say things who are, people who are other, people who are not white, um, when we're referring to those populations. As a black woman, I'm, it's very common for me to see that we are not included you know, in the policies as, or centered in the policies. Why would they be, why would you be when you live in an inherently racist, anti-black, anti-other society, world, country? You know what I'm saying? Um, so the fact that, it, and, and that's how racism works a lot, right? A lot of times, that's what we have to think about, right? That absence of, of um, inclusion. It's the exclusion. It's, it's the, it's the white whitening of the organization, right? When we, when we pretend that every, when we have this sort of idea of this colorblind racist society, and therefore we don't, or this colorblind society, excuse me, I, that was Freudian. I said what I meant. Um, this colorblind society, right, which is inherently racist, because we know that that there are structures and systems and, and institutions that are that, that are that are constructed to to exclude some groups, right? So when we look at our policies and we see that there's nothing about race, no, that's not surprising because that's what we do, you know. That's that's how we, that's how it operates. That's how this individual or this 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 um, invisible um, dominant whiteness takes over everything is by excluding those 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 groups and not explicitly referring to um, other populations. So no, that wasn't surprising to me at all. I think that some of the things that were surprising may have come from um, the members that we spoke with, that individuals that had, for example, um, um, started the, the health equity group or the tobacco-related health disparities work group in SRNT. We have some, some um, prominent researchers that um, started this way back in the day, right? Right Before, before we were in, in the game. And to hear them speak about the challenges that they had, um, in, in moving that type of science forward within this organization. And to hear them speak about their experiences in the organization and, and saying, you know, I would never take a leadership position because it's too racist, it's too much, you know, it's laden with white men, and that is a dominant norm. I think I was surprised to hear that, not necessarily with the policies, but to hear that their experiences um, in the organization that they, that they remained a part of and that they continued to push forward um um health disparities research, I was surprised to hear that coming from those individuals, quite honestly. Um, and I don't think that my experiences have been the same in the in the society. Um, because some organizations that I, shall not be named um, that, that I belong to, I just won't go to their meetings because they are just hashtag too white, right? Um, and that the science does not represent um, um that which I am I'm invested in. So I've not had that experience, but to hear that from the others that I have the utmost respect for, that have pushed this this, this type of research um, and, and this work long before we were in this game, it was it was that was that was surprising, and it was a little bit disheartening, quite honestly.
0: I kind of I think I had a, had the same reaction when reading through the editorial that people had been told that health disparities research was not real science. I mean, is is, is that is that is that a common uh, perception among people in research?
2: So let me, let me uh, here's, here's what I'll tell you about. It's funny because I was thinking about this earlier this morning and I was thinking about um, when I started tobacco research, the reason why I came into tobacco research and I always tell this story was because I was on a listserv. It may have been SRNT, I can't remember who it was. I was on a listserv as a graduate student and they were talking about tobacco um, related health disparities in black populations. I had no interest in studying tobacco at all initially, um, I was like, you know, people smoke, they wanna quit smoking, they'll quit smoking, it's no big deal, right? But when I learned about tobacco practices or predatory practices um, in black and brown communities, when I learned how they co-opted and and, um, misappropriated black culture, and when I learned how insidious um, these practices were and that the federal government in this country were not willing to protect uh, black populations as they were others, then I was like, oh, I'm down for the fight, right? Um, I, I, I went into the field wanting to study tobacco in black populations. I wanted to study menthol and, and flavored cigars. And I remember a very prominent white male researcher told me, and this was years ago, um, before there was any discussion about a ban on menthol, don't study menthol because they're gonna ban it anyhow. Don't focus on black populations because you'll never get funded and you'll never get published. Wow. That is health disparities research, Robert. That is, is tobacco-related health disparities research. That's why I came to the field, was to study these populations. They haven't banned menthol yet. Yes, there's discussion in the United States about a, a, a proposed rule, potentially, right? We'll see if that happens. Um, and, and Black people are still dying from, from, from menthol. And this is, this is a preeminent scientist in the field that was a former president of SRNT, I'll tell you that. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, that told me not to study these things. So, this is, so it's not even just explicit health disparities research isn't a science. It's, it's, it's these sort of um, less, these more implicit sort of less, covert, more covert discussions and dialogue that tell you, oh, it's not valued. Yeah. It is not respected. It is not um, worth investing in. And especially if you want to progress in your own personal career that's there's what a, you're told time and time again there's a
0: kind of overtone of don't waste your time on that isn't there
2: don't waste your time and you know let's let's step back and think about it right let's think about what do we see so the preeminent journals in our field have not tobacco let's just say in biomedical research we have new england journal of medicine we have nature um we have lancet let's say right let's say that these are the three top most highly cited journals how many of those journals publish uh, disparities research, health equity research. How many of those journals publish research that has only a sample size of black populations or only sample of Latino or indigenous populations, or are they always comparing somehow to white, which is crazy when you think about the fact that you know that the white ones are most likely gonna have an advantage. So what are we really doing here? So yeah, you're told not just from, from other researchers, you're told by funding agencies, you're told by publishers that don't publish that type of research, you're told you're, you get that message when you look at an editorial board, much like your own, my friend, that is predominantly white, right? You're told that you you are not centered. You're told that in the field all over the place. So of course, when we're talking about research, it's just gonna replicate itself in that in that space. Sorry, I'm not putting you on blast.
1: No, no <laughs>
2: it's, it's, it's the nature of the field. It's the nature of the beast, right? And yeah. if we don't call it out and if we don't acknowledge it, and better understand it not only will we, we will inhibit our ability to progress as researchers and scientists we will not be doing the best research and work that we can if we do not acknowledge and address it
1: and i you know the only thing that i would add to that it's mignon is absolutely right you know the the currency of the realm in academia is grants and papers and it's and if you can't get those things, studying what is meaningful to you, your career suffers. And I feel like there has been perhaps a start with funding agencies, perhaps a start with journals to do this, but it's it takes everybody's effort to make it happen. And we ha- it is gonna be a long slog because we think about science and we think about, I'm gonna take the population, right? Scientists are trained to study the population, meaning everybody. And then I'll just control for gender. I'll just, and now we realize, oh, it's not binary anymore. I got to control for gender identity. And then I have to think about, okay, I'm going to control for race. Well, what does that mean? It's not biological. It's a sociological construct. So when I'm controlling for it or I'm comparing groups, what am I really doing? So this scientific premise that we have been operating under and training under and training so many scientists under that the population can be controlled for doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And so as we come to that realization, it really does elevate the importance of studying specific populations because their experiences are so very different they can't be controlled for. It's not biological. It has to do with so many constructs. We're just starting to measure the impact of racism and discrimination. That's a scale. We now use at my center. We didn't used to use it, but we have to use it because exactly. that is one of the key components of people's life experience. And it relates to their smoking.
2: Exactly. We now exactly.
1: measure not just gender. We measure sexual orientation. We measure gender identity because we are developing a much more sophisticated understanding of people. And as we do that and stop thinking about the population, you know, as Vignon says, this sort of whitewash, we're all the same, it's colorblind. We are actually doing
2: better science. Exactly, exactly. And that, Robert, is the science of health disparities. You see what I'm saying? That's when we start to move into the science itself of health inequity. We do not study race, we study racism. Race means nothing without context. My 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 blackness is irrelevant in the absence of your perceptions of it and your response to it, right? So he's like, "Whoa, what was that?" <laughs> but that's and that is where we're that's that is the science of health disparities and the science of health inequity that we're told is not a science, right? But it's it, but it's but it's closer to. Um, Um, what we want to be as scientists, we're really trying to address these inequities and inequalities. We're trying to just promote the health of the public.
0: This is fascinating. It's it's such important work. Um, uh, And and thank you for talking so kind of in in so much detail about this today. when it came to kind of SRN, uh, NTE and your findings, if we kind of look at the, the kind of findings and the recommendations and the changes that you've made uh, as a result of, of your work, uh, what were some of the, those kind of key findings and changes that you've, you've been able to um, champion, make those changes towards, uh, towards a society that is, is more actively anti-racist?
1: So I, I think that there are two, maybe three, that I would highlight as the most important. Um, I think the, and it has to do, both of them have to do with elevating health disparities research. Um, at our annual meeting, we have, we have different tracks, right? So there's a, there's a preclinical track, there's a clinical track, policy, what have you. We have added a fifth health equity track. And that means there is equal exposure at the annual meeting for all five of these different levels of scientific investigation. And it used to happen, you know, there was a little bit of health equity work in the clinical realm and maybe a little in the policy realm, but now it's it, it, in, it in and of itself is a significant scientific contribution and it has to be elevated to, to an equal level. And that so we've added that track. Along with that track comes a talk at every single annual meeting that will be focused on health equity research. And so again, it has to do with elevating the prestige, elevating our ability to to learn important things that we can translate to public health and inviting people into that discussion, inviting scientists to be part of this and knowing that they are valued in the society. So I feel like that change, which we have um, our group recommended to the board and the board implemented immediately, that track is now in existence. So I feel like that's a huge one. Um, and then the second big one is that we, we did a lot of work, as Mignon said, we worked for what two years on this project. And I said, the task force is done, but the work isn't done. So there is an ongoing racial equity committee. It is now instantiated in our, in our procedures that this work is not done. And there, this committee is being formed. And we're going to have an ex-officio, non-voting member of the committee that is part of the board um, and it, it will continue to keep these important ideals front and center. So we don't let the work sort of slip and slide away and, and go back to that sort of, um, you know, colorblind approach to science. So those for me, I think are, are the two biggest changes that we've been able to to work on. And the racial equity committee will continue to work with the board to implement the rest of the recommendations.
2: Right, right. Yeah, I think, um, just to tag on to what Megan's saying, I think that the the most the most important um, thing that we did was institutionalize our work, right? So even if the individual people, folks that were on the, the committee walk away tomorrow, we've now and that's, that's the most important thing about any of this kind of work. Um, I hope that every society, organization, institution um, always thinks about is that this work shouldn't be tied to one individual or one group. It needs to be sort of, it needs to be, just, just, as, just as racism is intri- intricately interwoven into the fabric of every organization, so too must anti-racism be, right? And so that means, you know, sort of ch- changing the policies, it means, adding members on boards it means um ensuring that the work is is continues in the long run once once we're gone so we can we could say we kind of made history on this one actually <laughs> it's really fantastic but yeah that's 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 what we did there
0: it sounds uh, you've 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 either answered uh, all the questions that i had or um made them sound stupid so i don't want to say them out loud is there anything is there anything that we've not covered in this conversation that you would you would like to cover i think is probably important
2: i there's something i would like to cover and it's not just our our organization because we're just one we're a drop in the bucket you know we're we're a a powerful and mighty group but we are but one group and one organization and um my challenge to others would be that they take up the mantle themselves um organizations such as the american um, public health association um, that focuses on tobacco and has, you know, um, substance and, 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 um, um, organizations or individuals that focus on substance and addiction and disease and that, of that nature, um, that they begin to reflect on their role in, um, contributing and reproducing inequities, um, that they reflect on their role in, and their relationship with tobacco industry that we know, um, uh, prey on Black and Brown communities, Indigenous communities ac- across the world. Um, that we begin to consider um, beyond just SRNT, but as folks that are all invested in, in, in improving the health of the public. What what is the position that we're going to take, and what actions are we going to take in order to that are not symbolic gestures, but that that um, that will truly move the needle forward to advance. Um, the science, but also to 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 um, uh, disengage our our membership or our, our ourselves from from contributing by supporting industry in the ways that we have in the past.
0: Yeah, and it's um uh it's it's a process that that we're undertaking at the moment, and you know in part uh um we, I suppose, is the SSA, uh, in part kind of, uh, you know, driven by the same pressures that you talked about at the beginning of this podcast, but also influenced by, by your editorial and, and your, um, your passion and communication in this area. Um, what advice would you have for other organisations who are kind of at the beginning of this process? What, what kind of key pieces of advice to help moving, move that forward w- would you give to those organisations?
2: So my, my advice would be, A, call us. We're happy to help you guys. Um, <laughs> our band will be happy to work with your band. That's one, um, because we're all in this together, right? We're all trying to do, we're not in you know, individual entities that are, that are vying for, okay, who's the most anti-racist? We're all trying to do this together and work together. So that's one. Um, two, make sure that you have representation and voices at the table that are committed to the cause. Don't just have representation. One of the things that drives me bonkers is that, you know, (laughs) you see these initiatives happen, you're like, oh, we need somebody black, let's call Mignon. You know, well, Mignon may not be down with an anti-racist agenda. Mignon may not, Mignon has been trained and indoctrinated in the same ways that Robert and Megan and and Kelvin and everyone else has, right? So don't assume just because I look like I I may be um, um, well-versed and quite knowledgeable in these areas, that may not be the case, right? So, so look at the work that they do as a researcher, as a scientist, but as a whole, the work that they do in the community, the students and things of that nature, right? Look at the, you know, do that because there's nothing more irritating than, especially as a person that, that's from that population, right? Um, there's nothing more irritating than seeing someone that looks like me that I know is a symbolic gesture, if nothing else, right? It's, it becomes very disheartening. And, and people may not know any different. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is, I would say, just be humble, be open, be, be have humility, have grace, have dignity, listen to others. Don't tie yourselves to your own personal research agendas. This is about something greater and something bigger than ourselves as individuals. If we do not address race and racism in our society, we cannot address the bigger issues that we need to at hand. We cannot address climate change. We cannot address... You know, healthcare issues. We cannot address, you know, there's there's nothing that we can address if we cannot connect as humans and see the humanity in one another. So let's remember what this is about. This is about something greater than, than the next paper I'm gonna publish or the next grant that I'm gonna get or the work that I do as a scientist. This is about trying to um, shift the needle and 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 create the the the, the society that we we want to live in and that, that that our children, for those of us that have them. Um, deserve to live in and deserve to have. It's about just something so much greater.
1: That's that's what I've got for you. Yes. Yes to all of those things. And, you know, um, this is something where I, again, as I became more and more aware of how much science suffers from racism in terms of our ability to learn, understand, excluding brilliant minds, excluding brilliant perspectives, I I realized that this is not just something, again, to make us all feel better. This is something we need as science in order to progress. And so it does require being uncomfortable. You know, the word racism, especially at the beginning of this process, I had a visceral reaction to it, right? I'm not racist. I'm, and, and, Being able to- I probably told you, yes, you are. Everyone is, we all are. So am I sometimes. And that was so helpful for me, but I had to be open to listening to it. I had to hear it. And I had to be able to internalize it and understand what that means. Does it mean I'm a bad person? No, it means I was raised in a society where white is privileged and other is not. And I recognize that. And I realize it doesn't have to continue to be that way. So how do you start? You start by getting people like Minion said, who have an investment, who have a perspective and a commitment to do the work um, and openness to hearing others. And you tackle the structure because that has to be where you start. You have to tackle the structure and then you have to tackle the visible parts. What are people seeing when they look at your society? You know, we had a fantastic annual meeting last year and there was a young Person, a young woman scientist, African American woman, she got up and she said, I am a grad student. And I tell you, my grad program is kicking my butt. But I came here and I see so many people of so many backgrounds. And I am willing to stay in this fight and keep going because I see the value I can contribute. And so when people can see the value that they contribute, they're going to work harder, they're going to contribute more. And it's then I feel like we are all evolving and learning more, so you've got to tackle the structure, and it has to be visible to people so that everybody understands the importance of this work.
2: Yeah, let me just say, I just want to say one more thing. I'm sorry, Robert, because one of the things that I that I think is really important that we need to think about, and 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 um, we've touched on it a little bit, is and, and Megan triggered it in my head, which is like thinking about the history of science itself, right? So when we think about why did we create race to begin with so half the people use race they control for race they like measure they think they're measuring race whatever that is um but they don't even know why race was constructed to begin with they don't understand where the statistics that we use and statistical significance how it's born out of eugenicist thinking right they don't even understand the basic methods that we use and so um, I think it's really important as scientific organizations and societies that we start to think about our science itself, the, 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 the tools, the skills, the methods, the processes, the procedures, not just the machines that's part of publishing and grants and all that other stuff, but the actual scientific tools that we use, the type of inquiry, the type of questions, we need to start interrogating all of it. Which the, and once we do that, then we will move the fields forward. You know, this is, this, what we're talking about is is very, this is easy compared to what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is how do we blow up everything that we've ever known that we've been taught and reconstruct it in a way that, that, that is beneficial for all groups, right? That was not sort of normed on white men. How do we do that? You know, when you start paying people to do that, then I'll know, I'll think you're serious, right? Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is paying me to do that, but, but you know, you don't see NIH doing that. that's when I know that we will be moving the field forward when we really begin to interrogate the work. And, and as scientists, it's tough, right? We've made a career off of like you know certain approaches and methods and questions and things like that. We're asking people to divest from their their scientific legacy and to try to construct something new um, and be part of that pioneering this type of work. Yeah,
0: yeah I, and particularly in uh, in addiction, we in in addiction research um you get so used to kind of that that approach that that pathologizes diversity and says that something is different from this norm therefore it's something that we we label and we work out how to address somehow and there's that inbuilt kind of perspective that kind of has like diversity is something that we're trying to either correct or or understand in a in a kind of medical model um and and
2: that is what white supremacy does. She said the WS word. That is what white supremacy does. That is what it does. That is white supremacy. That's how yeah. it operationalizes in science and research. Yeah, sorry, you just made me very excited.
1: When we, when we, try, <laughs> when we try to control for error variance, we are losing so much. But that's what we're trained to do. Right, right, right. So see,
2: you were trained to be racist. (laughs) (laughs) As was I, Megan, as was I. And I had no
1: idea. (laughs) And I am so very, very grateful that I've had the opportunity to learn from Mignon and Kelvin and the rest of the people on the task force, because this kind of an education is not something I think most people get to have. So again, my white privilege has extended beyond into <laughs> this opportunity.
0: Okay, I have no idea how to wrap this up, um,
2: but uh... oh, you can wrap it up by by sort of putting down your commitment to moving this this work forward as well, my friend. That's how you can wrap this up. <laughs> Look, shrink. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um, no, we'll, I, this, we'll be watching you. <laughs> we uh, no, I, I I'm, I'm genuine when I say that uh, that your editorial and uh, your editorial on this has, has um, hastened what we were doing. Uh, it's, it's it's brought more focus to it. So we're having a independent review. Of, uh, of our policies an independent review to look at equality, diversity and race within our policies and that's something that we we started uh, a while ago and um, we have revisited and, uh, and want to do more of but we're very conscious that that's just an initial step uh, in something that needs to be uh, yeah, bigger, more substantial, uh, more thorough, and I think what you you talked about earlier about um, institutionalised—you know—those changes need to not just be a kind of one-off set of changes of kind of find and replace through policies, but there needs to be that kind of ongoing commitment to development, responsiveness, and change. Um, and it's something that that you know you're right in your editorial that that it's overdue in organisations like uh, like the SSA, um, and something that we want to. Um, the fact that it's overdue is something we want to amend now. Um, so, so, yes.
2: If not now, when, right? Exactly. I just want to say one more thing, which is I, I urge you to not let this drag on too long. Hmm. Because, because it becomes very easy to slip back into the lull that we were all awakened from, you know, two or three years ago. We know that 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 attention to these issues, to to race, racism, civil rights, you know, social justice, these kinds of things, they ebb and they flow, right? So so there's always a pendulum, and and it's funny when Megan said funding agencies are starting to move into this direction, journals are starting to move into this direction. The first thing I thought about in my head is, my, right now the way I'm operating is I have to run, I got to push, I got to grind hard. Because I know that that, cur- that curtain is going to go down again, right? So how much can we advance? This? Because inevitably it will. Because that's how white supremacy works, right? And so we have, to, we have to strike while the iron's hot. We have to make as much advancement as we can during that period of time. And We have to be cognizant and aware of the fact that that curtain is always there. To- Gravity will always try to pull it down. That curtain will always be there to try to close So what can we do during this time and how can we try to continue that momentum in the future? You have to be aware of it. We have to.
1: And the thing that I would add to that is leadership has to take personal responsibility and invest in it. It cannot be one of the 10 things on the agenda. Somebody has to be passionate about it. Somebody has to keep pushing because if leadership doesn't push it, it will not happen.
2: happen. And so
1: this was something that, you know, I was really committed to making sure happened and there are so many people that want to help and work on this if you can get the right group it doesn't have it doesn't have to be the board it doesn't have to be that but there has to be somebody in leadership that is going to commit to making these changes and doing this work and then getting the right group of people to do it
2: and they really need to be white
1: they do let's be honest they do <laughs> this is why i told
2: megan megan said one time we were in a meeting she said well should i really be saying this i'm like oh, Megan, megan <laughs> white people created this problem this is your people <laughs> clean it up Help us clean it up yes. like, this is this is not my problem to clean up i'm here i i, I, I want to be here i want to support i want to move the cause but this is not my issue i did not create this let's exactly. remember right let's take ownership and I will be here to support because we will all benefit. People are not doing me a favor. People that look like me a favor. We will all benefit in me. We haven't discussed how racism, how anti-black or anti-other racism affects white people. That's a whole other story. Jonathan Metzl talks about that. It has detrimental effects on white people as well. But but we have to we have to understand how it it, it plagues the whole of our society, not just not just not just serving people who are not white
0: sorry Um, on the note of of this work of the work that you do and the work that other organizations need to do on the note of that benefiting everyone uh i would like to thank you both so much for your time it's been um uh it's been an education it's been absolutely inspirational um and i thoroughly enjoyed it uh so um dr megan piper dr mignon guy thank you both so much for your time today
2: thank you so much thank you